Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Connection podcast. I'm Michael Musangu. I'm a student at the University of Portland that studies biology and minors in history. Today, we're going to be discussing a topic that I've been waiting to do for such a long time. In fact, why I'm so happy to do this episode is because I learned about this event in history only about two months ago. And one can ask, why is it only that you learned about this two months ago? And to be frank with you, I don't know why. But now that I know, it's my duty to share what I know with you all. Because I feel like we tend to make the same mistakes if we don't understand the historical past of these same errors. And today I want to speak about Stalin and Holodomor because I understand that there are a lot of things and a lot of insights into human nature that we can gain through the learning of this historical event. And I believe it will be done if we take a look at the info in today's episode. But before we get started, let me start with a quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It states that violence can only be concealed by a lie. And the lie can only be maintained by violence. And I think if you listen to that quote, it will give you... If you keep that quote in your mind as we go through today's episode, you will start to see the unfolding of a lot of these events. And you'll start to see how violence and really lies and deceits maintain a lot of that that thread in today's episode. Today we're going to be speaking about, of course, the Ukrainian famine. And where we last left off on this topic is that Russia, um, really Lenin, had led to power, came to power in Russia through the uh, Russian Revolution and started the Soviet Union. Now, of course, we're not really continuing that vein. We're more continuing in the vein of Stalin. But Ukraine's story really starts there. And when the Soviet Union came together, the Soviet states came together and they were unified, you know, unified. And the Kremlin was really running everything. I mean, you know, Russia was really running everything regarding the Soviet Union because, you know, being the leaders. And basically... Ukraine was a problem. And why was Ukraine a problem? Because they were very individualistic. They, they, they were united in one culture in the sense that they were individuals and didn't, they didn't cater to the Russian customs. They catered to their own customs and own ways of doing things. Now, you can understand where this became a problem because the Soviet Union, being communistic, very were one group, were one, you know, body, one nation. Therefore, we need to have one form, one custom. Any other dissenting forms or dissenting customs are wrong, etc., etc. This became a problem, and Lenin started to see this problem with Ukraine because they were very individualistic. And he actually thought of it as a great hindrance to the USSR. Now, with the advent of the communistic regime, Ukraine actually had a lot of significant changes to their social, socioeconomic, and political life. And the people that mainly suffered with this were the traditional rural villages. In fact, the Soviet authorities forcefully um, forcefully spread amongst the Ukrainians new customs and new rituals. In fact, they made them renounce their past and forget their origins. But the story really starts in about the year 1928. 
And why I say this year is because this is the year that the Soviet leadership pronounced or pronounced, announced a policy of collectivization. This was a five-year plan in which all the individual private farms and all the and all the collective farms that were under state property basically became part of the Soviet Union. So basically all in, all individual private farms and all the farms that were part of the state now became part of the Soviet Union. And they all belong to the Soviet Union because under the theory of, again, of, under Karl Marx, all private property should be abolished and all private property should be property of the state so that the workers cannot be exploited under that theory. So in doing this, they brought all this under the realm of the USSR. And this basically was with the goal that they can control grain exports and basically fund the industrial revolution of the USSR. Collectivization, let me define that real quick, is the act that applies something to a group of people rather than individuals. And you can understand, you know, with Ukraine being a very individualistically minded people and having this policy of collectivization where you have to give all you, what, that you own to the state for them to use for the pro propulsion of the state, you can understand why Ukrainians would be like, um, no, I don't agree with that idea. That thought doesn't make sense. And of course, this gets more and more tough as a lot of farmers actually had a certain number of work days where they worked off the natural products that they, um, that they were paid by, essentially. In essence, like you could only work like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And, and when you worked those days, you could only work off of the certain natural products that you could be paid by. And you can understand that even with all these, quote, rationed workdays that you got, these workdays were so horrible that the, I mean, the totality in the sense that you would only work a couple weeks, you know, in a certain amount of time, that basically farmers, Ukrainian farmers, really were denied the ability to feed themselves and their families. And this was tough because, I mean, you are, I mean, with the Ukrainian mindset, you're very individualistic, right? You work, you feed your family, and you keep working, and you make a life for yourself. That, that's the thought there. And you can understand why this was so hard for them because, again, having a collective system of implementation, you start to have a lot of pushback. Because, again, you're really forcing us to all give you food and and all this stuff, and then you're going to ration it back out to us based on how much we work. But if we don't get enough to work with, we're gonna starve and we're not gonna get enough to eat. So what are we going to do? So this led to a lot of pushback from farmers. In fact, you had 4,000 local rebellions that were performed by these Ukrainian farmers, and the secret Soviet police, uh, the Soviet secret police rather, the GPU, and the Red Army suppressed these protests. With the thousands of protests that occurred, you had thousands of farmers that were arrested, shot, or deported to labor camps. And they resisted very hard. And what's fascinating is that even though they resisted, they resisted harder than the Russian peasants in these cases. And most of the villagers that resisted 
and that were protesting were forcefully carried into collective farms by compulsion, terror, and a lot of the propaganda wars that really led to the results of all these farmers being violated and, and getting beaten, shot and killed, deported to Siberia and all these things, it was because the Soviet Union labeled them as kulaks. Why are they called kulaks? In, in, in short, the term kulak refers to the bourgeoisie. If you are a kulak, you are part of that bourgeoisie, that capitalistic class where you work for the exploitation of others. Now, here's the funny thing. Kulaks isn't one of the terms, but kulak in a sense meaning counter-revolutionary, a bourgeois nationalist, all right? And of course, this was the excuse to destroy these people because now you could just say, hey, these kulaks need to be destroyed and therefore this is a reason to destroy them because we need to usher in this Soviet Union, the communist, the communist regime, the communist utopia of no one being exploited, everyone makes what they work. And what's funny is, is that just because you were kulak did not mean you were rich. That's the funny part. Being able to kulak, anyone was labeled a kulak. If you had a farm that produced some yield and you had a roof over your head, you were labeled a kulak. Anyone was labeled a kulak. The rich were labeled a kulak. Even the poor peasant farmers were labeled a kulak. So really, it didn't mean that just because you were a kulak meant that you were rich, actually. In fact, like I said, most people without eat, with basic housing and a couple farm animals were labeled kulaks. So it was really an excuse to just get at all the Ukrainians for having this individualistic mindset because they called them bourgeois nationalists for loving their culture and loving the people as opposed to being into the Russian culture and the Russian people, which is very funny, isn't it? That they would have that idea of your culture is wrong, but our culture is the way to go. I, I find that very fascinating. Now, these farmers were the main targets of the secret police and the mass stripping of homes. Now, Stalin enters this story because Stalin was really the one who, who caused a lot of these frictions that were behind the Ukra that were behind the Ukrainian people, but mainly the famine in general. And so I'm going to start with a little bit of his background. He was born in Georgia. That's the first thing we got to know here. Stalin was not Russian. He was born in Georgia. His name was Joseph Vesarianovich Drugashvili. He was born on the 18th of December, 1878, and he grew up in a small town of Gori, Georgia, which is part of Georgia at the time. And it wasn't until his 30s, actually, that he took the name of Stalin. Stalin meaning man of steel from Russian. And he grew up very poor. Um, he grew up very poor. He was the only child. And basically, when he was around when he was in his teens-ish, around that age, he started to get this opportunity to go to seminary to study for the priesthood. And in doing so, he came across the works of Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto. When he started studying at the seminary, he started getting really into reading Karl Marx and this idea of the Communist Manifesto and the ideals of this utopia that it could provide. 
And basically, he got expelled from this seminary for missing exams. Even though he claimed it was for Marxist propaganda, he got expelled for missing exams. And when this happened, he started becoming involved with the Bolsheviks. And we all know who they are. This, this is the Marxist Communistic Party that was in Russia at the time. And he became involved with them. And he actually started performing a lot of criminal activities with them. For example, bank heists. He was like one of the top bank heist guys of the time. And these proceeds that he used from the bank heist were basically used to fund the Communist Party. Or I should say the Bolshevik Party, really. And between 1902 and 1913, he was arrested multiple times and he was subjected to imprisonment and exile in Siberia. But what's important here is that Stalin rose to power. And when I mean rose to power, he started gaining a lot more prominence within the Bolsheviks when he came to, when Lenin came to power and, lead, and leadership of the Soviet Union. Stalin was actually the secretary general of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. And you can understand that having one of these high-ranking positions, he had a lot of time to grow his political base of support. And he was also able to, to appoint a lot of allies to government jobs that basically agreed with them in ideology and thinking. But with Lenin dying in 1924, this allowed for Stalin to weasel his way into power. And, you know, I've looked at a lot of things that um, this historian named Norman Neymark had done in this subject. And one of the things I've garnered is that Stalin, when Lenin died, was not the immediate guy to take over the Communist Party. I, I think that's one thing we got to note here. He wasn't the person that people thought, you are the natural leader to start. One thing we do know from Stalin's time being secretary general is that he was a good bureaucrat. He was a good politician. He knew how to run politics. He, he was a good politician. But did that mean he was suddenly the natural leader of the Soviet Union? Most people argue no. And I, I think Norman Neymark is one of those people who, can, who argued that as a historian. Now, he basically weasels his way into power. And what I mean is that he basically maneuvers himself, circumvents the people who were really more in that ready to assume the leadership of Lenin and basically usurp them in gaining power. And one of the people he usurped was Trotsky. We also talked about him last episode if you hadn't had an opportunity to listen to that. Trotsky, he was another main leader, one of the right-hand men of Lenin, really, along with Stalin. And what's crazy is that when Lenin died, Stalin actually was the one who was running Lenin's funeral. And in order to really make himself look good, he basically <laughs> created this thing where he told Trotsky the wrong date for the funeral. Imagine that. He told Trotsky the wrong date for the funeral. And basically, when Lenin's funeral is happening, he basically gives Trotsky the wrong date. And what does this do in the eyes of all the other communists who support Trotsky? Wow. Trotsky? You didn't show up to Lenin's funeral? What kind of leader are you? 
How can you not support this man who's done so much for Russia? And Stalin basically shows up and he's like, I truly care for the Soviet Union. I did not leave Lenin. Miss, I did not leave Lenin to go down in his grave without caring and, and showing my respects at his funeral. And, and you can understand where Lenin started to lose popularity, or er, not Lenin, but Trotsky started to lose popularity in that aspect. But again, Stalin really wanted to become leader. So he basically exiled Trotsky into Mexico. And, and the reason he was able to do this was because of this, right? Trotsky started to lose popularity because they're like, how could you do this? You, you didn't show up to Lenin's funeral. You, the right-hand man, like that doesn't make sense. And a lot of people couldn't understand this. And they were behind the fact that Trotsky was basically just exiled. And with Trotsky getting exiled, Stalin rises to power. And he assumes power. And when he does, actually with sending Trotsky to Mexico City, Stalin then sends an assassin to Mexico City to put a pickaxe through Trotsky's head. And in, and in fact, he actually killed Trotsky. So with this tumultuous seize of, seizure of power, I should say, by Stalin, we can now start to pick up the, the ideas regarding the Ukrainian famine. Because now we have this man in power who's willing to do anything at all costs to bring about this utopia of communism. And he's willing to do it at all costs. If you can tell a little bit from what he did just to gain power from Trotsky, he literally had this ideal of the ends justify the means. And, and you can see those threads just coming up a little bit. The ends justify the means. And the end was, hey, I want to be leader. So the means he used to get there was, well, you got to, you know, eliminate some people in the process. With Holodomor, it just gets more and more dark. Holodomor itself comes from two Ukrainian words. It means, um, well, let me spread them apart first. Holod means starvation. Mor meaning death. So Holodomor roughly translates to death by starvation. And you can understand why the Ukrainians really adopted this word because that's really what it was. The Ukrainian famine was a, a tough thing because that's really, that's ha what happened. Ukraine at this time was really the breadbasket of Europe, all right? They had the high probably the highest production of grain. They had a lot of rural farmers. They really propulsed their economy through farming. That's how it was. And I mean, you can argue that was really how a lot of the world was. A lot of the world was very rural, a lot of farmers, etc., etc. Now, knowing how strong-minded the Ukrainians were in being individualistic, they weren't just going to bend to Soviet, U to uh, not really Soviet Union, but more to Russia in adopting their culture, their customs, their economic practices, etc. The Soviet Union basically created a plan to exterminate the nation, which was disguised as 
grain procurement plans. And this idea was basically remo removal of all the stocks of grain and other food property as penalties for failure to procure grain. And again, where this came about was with that five-year plan, right? And this plan that Stalin laid out was a plan to bring in more industrialization. And in doing this, one of, the, one of the parts of this plan was to procure grain because that would be able to, you know, be sold to other nations. You give them grain, we get money. The money goes to bettering the industrialization of the nation. Seems like a pretty simple idea. But, in, but at what cost is this supposed to be done? So now you have people getting punished, all right, for not giving up their or no, for not being able to procure grain. And basically, after Ukraine was under famine, the Soviet Union cut off all the ways to get help. I mean, I mean, literally, Stalin knew that his quotas that he had were unrealistic to harvest huge amounts of grain. But the reason it was done was because, again, Lenin knew that Ukraine was a hindrance to the ushering in of this communistic utopia because they were very individualistic and they were going to rebel at any imposition of other cultures that weren't their own or other ways of life that weren't their own. That's just how they were. They lived their own, they minded their own business, they worked. And basically, they ha Stalin created this unrealistic plan that basically forced them to meet certain quotas of gathering grain and giving it to them. But they also had to give property, and if they didn't do so, you would get punished. In August of 1932, there was this law called the Law of Five Years of Grain. He decreed that anyone, even a child, if they are caught taking produce from a collective field, and basically at this point, most of Ukraine became collectivized, and collectivized meaning it belonged to the Soviet state, so if you were caught taking grain, you could be shot or imprisoned for stealing socialist property. This law was approved by Kaganovich and Molotov. These were the two right-hand men to Stalin, whom we will discuss a little in the future. Now, with this idea, literally, if you are caught taking any grain from a collective field, which is basically all the collective fields at this point, you could be shot or imprisoned or tortured. Either way, you are at the mercy of whatever the GPU or the Red Army does to you. And even if you're caught gleaning, like just a morsel of grain, the subject, the people who were caught were subjected to being shot and tortured and imprisoned or deported. And this started to become a real problem because by the fall of 1932, Stalin's wife, as a quick side note, she actually committed suicide because she now started to realize this collectivization process or policy was very unrealistic and it wasn't going to usher in any, any, any true utopia because it's only going to cut one people off. And basically, she committed suicide 
in light of the fact that she literally is in a in a lose-lose situation. She can't do anything. She's married to arguably one of the worst dictators in 20th century history, and she's stuck. So she killed herself in defiance to Stalin, and Stalin was so angry. Stalin was angrier than angry. Stalin, in some weird fashion, actually loved this woman. He actually loved his wife a lot. And when she committed suicide, this was one of the things where he's like, you did this to, uh, to prevent me from ushering in my communist republic? And this fueled his anger. In, in many ways, you could argue this was one of the catalysts that led him to become more and more ruthless as we move on through his reign, really, a reign of terror. So, with Stalin's wife committing suicide, now you have a lot of these policies that are being implemented. The farmers that weren't able to make these quotas were repressed by the Soviet leaders. Ukrainian books were burned. Local officials were forced to stop speaking the Ukrainian language. And local cultural activities were stopped. They were being repressed just for being a people. They were being repressed just because they had this mentality and their own way of living. And because they would not bend to the Soviet ideal of how to live and how to usher in a communistic regime, they basically were going to do anything that was possible to maintain this idea because if you're going against the idea we got to do anything we can to stop it and it didn't help much because the ukrainians were like um we're going to resist and they're like you're going to resist we're going to use force to get you to comply and by the beginning of 1933 you had about 54,700 people who were tried and executed or tried and sentenced rather 2,000 people were executed because, again, of these policies of, of farmers who basically were not following this ideal and laws that Stalin had put in place. And you think that was bad? It gets worse. The law on November 18th of 1932 was basically meaning that all... There was basically a total removal of food, and there was a ban on trade and transportation of goods. And if you were a farmer, you were banned from leaving the country. So now the repression gets so great that there was a complete removal of food. There was a ban of trade. So there was no transportation of goods. Nothing was being brought into the country, and everything was being taken out. And if you were trying to leave the country to go find food, you were banned from leaving. You were forced to remain there. And this repressive regime was actually used not only in Ukraine, but actually in, um, in the Cuban part of, of Russia. The Cuban, um, how do I say, um, district or state or province, I should say. That's the word for it. And what's even worse is that in now January of 1933, we have a resolution 
that basically blocked Ukrainians from leaving the territory to go and buy bread, to even go and buy bread, which was rationed at the time, by the way. And they were banned from doing so. It got to such a point that they had the GPU and you had other members of the Red Army and the NKVD, which was basically the precursor to the KGB, they all were hanging out in these cities, right? They were all hanging out in these major cities. And if someone was trying to leave, they were shot. If someone was trying to move out of the city or going to a field to glean, you were shot or killed or deported or whatever, tortured horribly, then killed. Either way, you were repressed from trying to go and get basic food. This is a function of a human life to go and get food, you were repressed. It's a terrible thing. And they actually then placed the system, the Soviet regime, that you couldn't even, you couldn't even travel. So you, only those who were part of the inside people could get internal passports, and those passports were denied to farmers so you could not even get a train ticket without official permission. And of course, no one got official permission if you were Ukrainian. And the people that failed to meet these quotas of collecting grain were put on blacklists. And these blacklisted people were also blockaded as well. And it got to such a point that in order to escape death, from starvation, people literally had to eat anything they could. Cats, dogs, grass. I mean, you're resorting to eating grass. But it got to a point where people were eating other people. That's right. There was cannibalism occurring. And in fact, while all this was occurring, Stalin put on this front that, oh no, um, there's no famine going on in Ukraine. Uh, don't worry about it. Nothing is going on. In fact, there was a refusal from, of help from the NGOs of the time. You actually had the Red Cross, which was noticing, hey, 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 Ukraine is looking like they're having some sort of problem food-wise. Uh, let's, let's go help them. Stalin refused help from the Red Cross. Stalin refused help from other neighboring countries who were trying to bring their NGOs to go in and help them. He refused them to get help. In fact, in declaring that famine is non-existent and basically tightening this hold on, on repressing the Ukrainian people to meet Soviet ideals, it got to a point in June of 1933 where you had peak death tolls of people dying of starvation and resorting to cannibalism for a goal. One of the stories that I read was so tough. And, and, and the story was basically like this. You had peasant farmers who were struggling to live. And these two boys, these two boys were basically stuck there trying to find food and they found some fish and they found these fish and they basically hid them because they're like, if we're caught, you know, we need to eat, but we need to hide them. 
and the GPU came by and, and found them and they came by with these huge wooden sticks and they had little pointed metal ends on them. And the peasants lived in these houses that had, you know, basically dirt type floors. I mean, they lived very in very dismal, poor, poor conditions. And the GPU would come in and inspect their house. And if they didn't find anything in the cupboards, of course, they would start poking into the floors to see if there were any weak spots or if they were hiding food anywhere in the floor. And when they did so, they found these two fish. They had some fish. They went to catch some fish so they could eat. And these two boys had hit some fish. And, what did, and when the GPU found it, they pulled the boys out. They tortured them. All right, they tortured these two boys, tortured them. Then they dragged them through the field, beat them, then gagged them and left them in the field. First of all, they tied their hands, gagged them, then left them in the fields to suffocate to death just for having fish. It wasn't even having grain. And, and that's why I realized it started to become a personal thing for Stalin. It became personal in the sense that in order to usher in this Soviet Republic, we cannot have any dissenters. We have got to do everything that is possible to, to reach this utopia. And if you're going to resist me, any means that, it's, that is required to get there will be done. And that is what Stalin did. At the height of this famine in June of, 1930, of 1933, you had 28,000 people dying per day. 1,170 people dying per hour. 20 people dying per minute. I mean, just these tolls are insane. I mean, how is it possible that one could look at this and not feel some sort of remorse? I, I can't answer that question. I really can't. People dying left and right. And it was actually at this point that Stalin started to, to give seed and food loans to people. But the ones who got the food were the collective farmers who basically assented to the ideas of the communistic regime, and the ones who didn't were left behind to starve and die. But during all this time period, the exportation of food from the Soviet Union was at its peak levels between the years 1930 and 1934. And you can ask, well, how is this possible? Because again, the Soviet Union basically took all the grain out of the country of Ukraine. They took all the grain out and they put all the grain in the centralized state reserves amassed by the Soviet Union, in the Soviet Union, in Russia, that is. And therefore, that's why exports were so high. And when Stalin realized that, hey, well, people are dying, therefore I won't be able to keep my quotas of exports to bring more money in, therefore, uh, well, um, 
I better stop the collection police from, you know, preventing them from trying to collect food. And that's actually when you start to see easing of what happened in the famine. But some of the toll or some of the things that happened here were so, so tough to think about. Four million tons of grain were extracted from Ukraine in 1932. That is approximately enough to feed 12 million people. And again, where did all this grain go? This grain went to the Western nations, the United States, England, all these Western nations. And of course, business. So you give them the grain, we get the money. But what did that achieve with millions of deaths? You might think, okay, so what, did the world not know? What, like, how come no one acted? I'm going to tell you something. The world did know. You had powerful journalists. You had powerful journalists such as Gareth Jones. He went to Ukraine multiple times and cataloged this story. Some of these stories made a lot of the front pages of, of big, newspapers, big newspapers like the Times. And essentially, when this happened, they went, oh, this is sad. Most of the world did this. They said, oh, this is sad. And did nothing. They did nothing. It was front page news, yet the world did nothing, even though they saw these events going on in Ukraine. Now, when it comes to the amount of deaths that happened from this Ukrainian famine, Holodomor, it remains quite open. Some researchers, some researchers say that as much as 7 million people died in Ukraine alone, and 3 million other regions of the USSR, such as Kazakhstan, uh, the Cuban region, and the Central Black Earth region. Most recent research says that about 4 million people died in Ukraine, 1.5 million people in Kazakhstan, and the Cuban and Central Black Earth region. <clears throat> but the unfortunate part in all this is that the Soviet regime did everything in their power to ensure that no one could tell the real number of deaths because they were concealed. And the, another key is that 13% of the population of Ukraine succumbed to the famine. That is one thing I guess that historians can agree on in this sense. About 13% of the Ukrainian population succumbed to the famine. In fact, it was forbidden to record the real number of deaths and the latest lists that have been shown from 1932 and 1933 from the deaths that occurred due to the famine, most of the deaths, of course, since they were um, due to hunger, most of them were said deaths from typhus or exhaustion or from natural causes. And they tried to conceal it. And by 1934, these official registry of all the deaths that occurred were transferred to the GPU and, and, and transferred to the GPU. And basically, they were hidden in their, you know, large filing cabinets somewhere in the Kremlin, probably, or wherever the GPU held their offices. 
Ukrainians died out in families, in villages. And because of this, a lot of records also weren't taken because complete villages literally died out. So there's no way to know the true toll in the amount of people that actually died. In fact, the Soviet government actually tried to, how do I say, they tried to um, conceal. They really tried to deny. They didn't even try to conceal. They tried to deny that a famine even occurred. And, and, and this is where Gareth Jones really became key. Because again, I, like I mentioned before, he was a journalist that went to Ukraine and he started to really bring out these stories, right? And, and basically tried to push against this idea of this denial of Holodomor as something going on. But Gareth Jones was eventually killed by a bunch of Chinese bandits in China. Now, I cannot tell you whether it's related, but he was killed by a bunch of Chinese bandits. He was actually tortured and killed after going to China on a journalistic trip. But one thing that is certain, when this famine started to ease up, in Ukraine, it was almost impossible to speak openly or discuss openly about this famine. In fact, after this famine ended, there were explicit instructions not to even mention the word famine for years. So actually, the memory of this famine was banished. And to be frank, it leads to a thought that I had about George Orwell. Because George Orwell had this great quote that I think fits this idea. And what is the idea is that who controls the past controls the future. And who controls the present controls the past. So in essence, if you are able to control elements of how of what the present and the past are, you can also control the future. And that's literally what the Soviet regime did to Ukrainians in advent of this terrible, terrible famine. It wasn't until the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 that we were actually able to obtain records about the Holodomor and understand the extent of how bad this event was historically. But let's be frank. With the ending of Holodomor, it doesn't get better for Ukrainians. It actually gets worse. Because now you have this fear of hunger, and then you have censorship that's going on. You cannot even mention the word famine. They actually erased famine from their vocabulary. There was a repression of life, honestly, to be frank. But after this, then you have new traumas that emerge. The Great Purge. World War II, the Holocaust, the 1946 to 47 famine. And it just, it doesn't get better, but it just gets more and more tough on Ukrainians and really the USSR in general. And I think this gives a lot of insight into human nature in the sense that I don't think I mean, from what I've looked at historically in some sources, it doesn't look like Stalin was aiming to just kill a bunch of people, okay? But, that said, one thing that can be understood 
is that one thing that can be understood is that Stalin, in trying to usher about this new republic, all right, this new communistic regime, this new communist utopia, whatever was required to achieve those goals, if you dissented against him in the fact that he had absolute power, you were cause to be eliminated. And now it comes to this question of, was Holodomor a genocide? And to be honest, I would, I would argue that it is. Raphael Lemkin, who was an expert in criminal law, he coined and promoted the term genocide. In fact, he had the, these ideas that he had really served as a basis for the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide in 1948. And this convention defined genocide as having the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. That was the definition that was put forth by this Convention of the United Nations. And I can almost certainly say that what happened here was Stalin and the communistic regime qualified as genocide. He literally did all he could to suppress the Ukrainian people. In fact, there were other leading historians like Norman Neymark, as I mentioned beforehand, Robert Conquest, and Anne Applebaum that have concluded the same ideas after extensively studying the subject. And the idea is the same. I can almost argue for myself that when you have a lot of people, or not a lot of people, when you have a person that tries to usher in this utopia of communism, you will do anything that allows you to get there because you are the one that cares for the people. But it comes back to this idea of who will rule the rulers. And with Stalin, he became so hardened to the descent of the Ukrainians that he would do anything possible to cause them to conform to the Russian ideals and ways of living, which took away their personal agency and led to their, to their deaths, ultimately. I hope this episode for you was very fascinating. I know it led a lot of insight into me. Me in the sense that there's a lot of insight into human nature that I just, I find fascinating. So if you do like this episode, please comment. Let me know what else I can do better for you. Hit that like button if you're on YouTube. Subscribe if you're on YouTube. And apart from that, until next time, I'm Michael Musangu. Thanks for listening to the History Connection podcast. Thank you.